Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. If you're anything like Sayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Kevin Stoffman. And he's recognized as one of the leading commercial real estate executives and CEO of Navigator CRE. And he's also a father to two daughters, an avid athlete, and a two times Ironman triathlete. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, as for most people, a pretty crazy last 18 months. Yeah, I can't deny that. So Kevin, I would love to hear a little bit about your background, if you can share with us and the listeners and how you got started with real estate. So real estate started pre-graduation. I've been involved in it for the better part of 17 years, mostly at large companies. I did an investment banking stint out of college, then got an MBA, then spent about 10 years in management consulting firms in what is now referred to as the prop tech group that was really wasn't called that back in 2010. But I spent a bunch of time evaluating various technology solutions that large real estate companies would employ to try to be more profitable. Got it. And when you say technology solutions, can you elaborate a little bit about what kind of technology solutions are you providing? Yeah, I mean, it was all over the place, right? Accounting systems, CRMs, access control tech, sensors, data integration and warehouses, visualization tools pipeline and investment tools, construction and development tools. It was just any technology that was ostensibly supposed to make people more efficient with their time and be able to make decisions faster because there's always more money chasing less deals. So today, what is your main primary focus? So I joined Navigator a couple of years ago as their COO. And most of our business is around the ingestion analysis integration and visualization of data. So financial data, operational data, market data, demographic data, really anything that a company would use to try to make decisions faster. And this is agnostic to property type. So we work with class A office, multifamily, industrial, hospitality, retail, land development, student housing, senior housing, et cetera. This is also agnostic to life cycle stage. So some of our companies are just trying to find the best deals to bid on them. Some are trying to do ground up construction and development. Some are merely capital allocators that just give a bunch of money to other operators and then evaluate their performance and reallocate as necessary. And some are just occupiers. They aren't even in the business of real estate. They are aviation companies, pharmaceutical companies, but they occupy a bunch of real estate and they're trying to make effective occupied decisions based on that. So we work with companies as large as Blackstone and companies as small as a family office that might own a thousand multifamily units. So what kind of data are you pulling into and how do you marry between the data that you're pulling and evaluating what the needs are of your customers? 
Yeah, it's a very consultative business, even though we're a SaaS platform. So we ingest a bunch of different types of data. Oftentimes, it's financial data from an accounting system. It's uh, pipeline data from Excel or a pipeline tool. It's investors and prospects and tenants from a leasing tool or a CRM. It's market data from all of your big data sources like CoStar, RCA, CompStack, et cetera. And how it's used and combined is completely dependent upon what our client wants to do, right? Are they a multifamily market rate developer that wants to find the best land plots? Are they a pension fund that wants to reallocate to more value add opportunities? Are they, it completely depends on property type and fund mandate and persona. So how are you gathering the data and what kind of data are you typically looking to provide? Yeah, the core information that I would say most people listening to your podcast would want to know is around how to initially find the best deals to invest in. Most folks here are investors. So this is understanding what properties are available in the market, who the active buyers and sellers are, sales comps and lease comps that might help them make the right decisions any sort of political or legislative data that may affect zoning, permitting around a particular area they're looking in, movement and population data and foot traffic. It's pretty wide ranging, but for anyone who's trying to find deals, it's going to be more market-focused data. For anyone who owns a bunch of assets already, it's all about optimizing the performance of those assets, right? Tenant mix, amenity mix, infrastructure surrounding other properties, that they're competing with to try to fill and maximize rents. So it's very different depending on the stage they're involved in. How did you decide to enter into this sector of real estate? (laughs) It wasn't purposeful. (laughs) 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 So most people that start their career in investment banking, we all think we're just going to do a bunch of transactions and build a book of business and make a bunch of money. But when I left Morgan Stanley, I went back to grad school to get an MBA. And my second week was the Lehman Brothers crash. And it, I think that changed for everybody in every industry, but most specifically in real estate, right? How do we value real estate? How do we deploy capital to it? How do we find out what information we need? Before the crash, no one really cared what information was driving returns. They just cared that the IRR was high. And then if you had dry powder back in 2010, 2011, you were finding a lot of good deals because there wasn't much dry powder out there and cap rates were high and interest rates were super low and if not negative. And it was a really good run from like 2010 to 2017. So I was just doing software implementations for all these real estate companies that wanted to track all the information. Right around 2017, cap rates were shrinking. Interest rates looked like they were going to start to creep up even though they, they really didn't. And investors wanted a lot more information. They wanted to know how these returns were getting achieved. They wanted to know what was coming on the horizon. They wanted to know if political pressures and unrest with the recent election at the time was going to affect their returns. Corporate governance and ESG started being talked about. There was a lot more requests and urgency around the gathering of information. And so I started looking at a lot of tech on behalf of my clients at Deloitte who might want this information. And that's how I found Navigator. 
Got it. And so as you were starting to find some more information, you're digging around and at the request of different clients, what about the space actually kind of drew you to it? Like what were you seeing in the market that actually enticed you to transition over? Well, there were, it was a confluence of things. One, it was just the amount of data that was getting collected. Man, early on in my career, it was just, what's the rent roll look like and how much is NOI? <laughs> they didn't care about much else. But these days, there are, I don't know, 7,000 different data points that a particular commercial enterprise might be tracking to, some more critical than others. So data volume was one thing. Secondly, the cost to store, analyze, track, and integrate was about one one hundredth what it cost when I started my career in real estate in 2004. So like the same data warehouse with the same amount of data that costs $100,000 to implement today would have cost you know, $10 million when I started. So it was, just, it was much easier to find and source information, track it, integrate it. And then thirdly, clients actually started caring about it, right? They were making investment decisions based a little bit less on art and a little bit more on science. Like the visionary founders of real estate companies, the, the Gerald Heinzes of the world, right? They operated for the first couple of decades just based on their gut and how much they knew about particular markets. These days, it's a lot more quantitative. It's not completely quantitative. There's still some gut feelings, reactions, and experience that go into it, but it's so much more data-driven business than it was when I started. So access, reliance, and cost all coincided in the desire for me to find a platform that did this. And I found them in 2017 and it took them two years to convince me to leave a cushy job to jump into a <laughs> And so like in, you know, in all of your experience and what you've seen, there's a lot of data points that you're analyzing, you're providing to different customers. So maybe at like a high level, maybe like three to five points, like which aspect, which data points have been the most I guess, sought after or important in the space so far that you've seen? Well, so pre-COVID, it was very different than how it exists today. So I'll talk about first pre-COVID. It was really all about the rental rates, how those drove cap rates and net absorption in the market that they were looking for, because that was going to determine one, how much they could earn in their particular building and how many other buildings were coming online to compete with the one they owned or were investing in. When COVID hit, it added so many other layers to the mix of optimizing portfolio management. So now it was about aged receivables, collections, delinquencies, abatements, the energy output and footprint of a particular building or set of buildings, the credit quality of the underlying tenant mix, the undergoing legislation around infrastructure that was surrounding the particular buildings and how that might affect zoning both for density and also for access. So the amount of data points that now have to be analyzed to make a sound investment decision have expanded quite a bit post-COVID. And that's regardless of property type, maybe with the exception of like a self-storage, right? So if you're in student housing, this has been very focused on because traditionally student housing has been pretty amazing asset class to invest in, right? This is mostly market rate buildings or a campus that can't really be relocated due to the value of campus assets and the brand. 
the tenants are usually backed by their parents or someone else that is co-signing for their lease. So that credit score is highly backed and they're continually turning every single year. So the market rate can continue to go up. You've seen with COVID, a lot of people do some remote learning. And even when they were allowed to come back to campus, this hybrid move where they could accomplish a lot of things without commuting. So that's called into question which student housing assets are sound investments versus which ones are risky. And we've learned that if you're a tier one university with an acceptance rate that's still below 20%, which would mean that five people are applying for any one available position, there will continue to be plenty of demand for housing stocks surrounding that campus university. But for some of the lower tier universities, that's not going to be the case. Now, this echoed in other property types and asset types, but you can imagine, right, now how much more you need to know about a particular building than you had to before COVID started. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Got it. And so with all this additional data that we have access to now, does that mean that the pool of good quality properties that you're looking to acquire now becomes a lot smaller? Uh, Not necessarily. And then that would depend on property types, but it would require that you have a deeper level of expertise in a particular investment type that you might be making. And that's because the access to available properties has ballooned with the advent of crowdfunding platforms, right? CrowdStreet, RealCrowd, Fundrise, Cadre. Now, as any accredited investor can access a bunch of different property investments without being catered to by a business development person or or coming to a fancy dinner and being told why this fund, why this building, you can go online and access so many, that can create a level of paralysis by analysis that can hurt anyone, right? And so if you don't have a particular set of expertise in regard to a particular property type, you might look at a couple metrics like NOI multiple or occupancy rate and just have a threshold in your mind and say, oh, those numbers look fantastic. And then you agree to invest, Without digging a little bit deeper, right? Are there any deferred maintenance issues in a building that need to be addressed? Is occupancy 98%, but a single tenant represents 40% of the building and they just declared bankruptcy two weeks ago, right? So understanding a little deeper level of detail is required because now it's so easy to deploy capital in real estate. Got it. So for your company and for yourself, what is next for you guys? And how do you kind of see the trend of the market going within real estate? Yeah, we have uh, about 2 billion square feet of owned assets on our platform represented across a variety of clients, Blackstone, Starwood Capital, Newmark, Brandywine. 
And most of that is in North America. So the, the next step is to continue to organically grow with our clients geographically. We just opened up our London office last month, but we definitely want to grow market share across most of the main food groups in the US. And when I say main food groups, I mean office, multifamily, industrial logistics, retail, and hospitality. And in order to do that, we just have to continue to show companies that we can accelerate decision-making at an executive level by integrating and combining all of their data together. And then after that, right, we think probably 12 months away, we'll go down market to provide a more off-the-shelf solution for people who own less assets or have less capital to deploy, but want to be able to punch up and manage a bunch of different data and be able to make decisions themselves without hiring employees. Have you seen any trends in the analysis and the data that you've taken a look at for the different markets that people are moving out of and going into? Definitely. If we're thinking just from a residential perspective, I think nothing I'm going to say is too surprising to your podcast viewers if they're deep in in the industry of real estate, but it's clear that high-tax states with fairly left-leaning political figures and policies that tend to favor renters. People are leaving those states for states that are a little more business-friendly and have political ideologies that are focused more toward the owner or the capital provider. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Although I think you might see the pendulum swing a little bit backwards in the 2022 elections. I also think weather has a big play component. So we've seen that people say, oh, well, everyone's just leaving California and going to Texas. And as a Texas resident, I've seen that population change happen and that those corporate relocations happen. But it's not totally clear that it's a one-way street, right? A lot of people moving from certain cities in a particular state to other cities or locales in another state. So they're not actually leaving the statewide tax structure. They're going somewhere that has maybe a little more local control. And I think people are also following jobs. So you typically, when I was early on in my career, it was residents moved and businesses followed. Now it seems like it's the opposite. So businesses are moving and residents are following to follow those particular companies. The second trend that we've seen is there's a lot less loyalty to particular city, a particular company, a particular MSA. People are more mobile, they're more nimble, and COVID only accelerated that to the nth degree. Now that companies have established all these hybrid work policies, people are commuting less, they're online more, and those are trends that are only going to continue. So if you're looking at real estate in places with attractive business climate and weather that are smaller cities with less infrastructure, uh, you know, like a Columbus, Ohio, or a Charleston, South Carolina, or more recently you know, in Austin, Texas, which is just ballooning and their infrastructure can't keep up. These communities continue to grow and are attractive investment opportunities in real estate. And then how about in terms of the demographics? Is there specific demographics that's following this trend or is it across all different demographics? We're seeing it across most demographics, surprisingly. The labor participation rate is super, super interesting. I've been in contact with the chief economist for Yardi, the chief economist for Statebook, the chief economist for Moody's, and they all give me similar data sets that show that 
the labor participation rate of people 35 and below was somewhere in the high 60s five years ago and is now in the low 60s. They have been less incented to find menial work since they're on the lower end of the totem pole. But you've seen the labor participation rate of the 55 and older set increase. People are deciding to work longer. That's likely because of COVID and retirement plans and or people deciding to take on more part-time work because they don't want to be bored. And what that dynamic means is increased sizes of homes. People are spending more time in their home and they want more space. That also means more amenity-driven communities. So you've definitely seen an arms race in the student housing community and the amenities that are required. But you're seeing the same thing in senior housing. Larger units, more amenities, more emphasis on social community so that as the tenants age, brain development is enhanced by more societal interaction. Got it. Thank you so much for your insight. Sure. So for yourself, Kevin, how has real estate investing impacted your life? Well, there's Kevin, the consumer. So I was a renter from 2004 until 2015 when we purchased our house. And how I experienced real estate as a tenant is very different now than as a technology executive. I have a lot more appreciation for the complexity of satisfying a tenant than being the tenant, right? All of the different sets of information you need to provide a tenant on a real-time basis that you have to do today versus what you had to do before. Secondly, like anyone else, wish I had purchased much, much sooner, right? There are a lot of headaches that come with being a homeowner that you don't have to deal with when you are a renter, right? You can have maintenance companies handle all of the, if electricity goes out or you lose Wi-Fi or an appliance breaks, right? You can just submit a work order when you live in an apartment community. And when you're a homeowner, you have to deal with all that stuff yourself. But all those headaches aside, it always seems better to have control over your domain and to take advantage of the financing mechanisms that allow you to push the payments to satisfy those financial obligations out for many, many years while growing equity, which you do not get to do as a renter. Some cities, it's been harder to do that, right? San Francisco, Los Angeles, Manhattan. But in most cities, the calculus is like, it's not even close. You definitely want to be an owner and not a renter. And I didn't appreciate that until later in life and later in my career. I wish I had acted much earlier. And then, so what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? Attention to detail. One of my mentors in the business, he likes to say, you make your money when you buy the real estate, not when you sell it which seems counterintuitive, but finding the right deals initially has such a high factor, determining determining factor of success versus when you try to time the market to sell the real estate. So avoiding a bad deal is often so valuable than finding an amazing deal. So if your listeners take away one thing from this, it is don't regret missing out on a deal that like got swallowed up quickly because you wanted to do more research and wanted to just gut check whether this was the right deal for you. You don't miss out really when you miss those deals because the capital remains in your bank account, remains in your wallet. Find the right deals for whatever your investment thesis is. And obviously, if you have questions for the Navigator team, we're happy to answer them free of charge. 
Yeah. I've heard from a lot of other people as well. And I've experienced myself. It's some of those deals that you walk away from that you have that gut feeling on. It's one of the best decisions that you've made in terms of business and preserving your capital. So there's a lot of no regrets on that end if you're walking away from what you consider as maybe not the most optimal deal for yourself. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that I run a data analytics company and I often tell people, use the data to get as close as you can to a decision. But at the very end of the day, you still need to rely on your gut on whether you want to commit capital to it. Absolutely. So Kevin, thank you so much for your time today and all of your insights. I definitely appreciate you know what you've seen, especially in today's market and how the trends have been changing since pre-COVID and after COVID. And if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you're doing in the space, where's the best place that they can go? Yeah, LinkedIn's usually the best. So it's Kevin Stoffman, S-H-T-O-F-M-A-N. And our company is navigatorcre.com. And I'd love to chat, learn more. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.